Amen. Um, Well, Ginger sometimes reminds me that I need to introduce myself too periodically, and so Devoted Sundays is another reminder to do that. I'm Chris Legg. I'm also one of the pastors here, and I have the um, the great privilege and honor of getting to shepherd all of you, and um, and in particular our staff and our leadership board, and all that that means. And it's just this is a great church. I don't know um, how fun it is to be a pastor in general, but it is great to be the pastor at this church. Um, you guys are awesome. You're generous, and and so um, uh, encouraging. And it's just it's just a great privilege. If you do not have a church home, um, I highly recommend this one. Um, I don't get like a percentage or anything like that. Like that doesn't, that's not how I get paid. Um, it, is, it is just, this is a great place to find a home and a family, um, dysfunctional though it is. So we would love to, uh, love to encourage you in that. Um, Devoted Sundays are about us talking about the strange things that we do um, as Christians, in particular three of them. Um, and so we, we, a few times a year, bring attention to these. So if you're like me, you grew up in a church that did these things, but sometimes... Um, didn't explain them. Or let's be honest, maybe they explained them perfectly and I just missed it. Uh, just being ADD though, the, the way that I am. And so, but my memory of it was that it wasn't clearly taught. Like, this is why we do this. This is what this means. This is what this is all about. So what we do is we talk about, uh, we'll take a Sunday and teach the entire sermon will be about the Lord's Supper, for example, or the entire sermon will be about dedication. We've already done those recently. And so this is the Sunday that we're going to focus and teach on what is baptism. Um, we've already had a number of baptisms this year. We've had 20 plus baptisms here at South Spring already this year. Last year, we had 50 plus total by the end of the year, which is, um, which is really a great, huge blessing that God would give those to us to get to experience those. Many of those are uh, obviously our children who, um, and in fact, Will McDonald this morning came forward and said, first service, said he'd put his faith in Christ and wanted to be baptized. And so we will be celebrating that together soon. And in fact, at the end of this service, if you say, I would like to be baptized today, we're ready. We can do it this morning. We will find you some clothes or a towel that you can take home, whatever. But we let today be the day of salvation for anyone and even potentially the day of baptism as well. Um, which is exciting. We, we love to have that. Um, so when we have children, one of the things we like to comment on, um, also on Devoted Sundays, is the reminder to us of what an amazing blessing it is that we have so many children at our church. Um, and, and so we want to celebrate that, recognize that, um, embrace that. And, and instead of, of too often it's the attitude, I think, in the churches that we grew up in was that it's, it's vitally important that children not act like children, especially um, in, these, in this you know, vitally important room or whatever, that we would say, you know, the natural temptation would be when a child was acting up or something to kind of cut your eyes over at their parents um, to kind of like, hey, you need to get that child under control. And what we would say here is if that's your temptation, that probably teach, says something more about your heart than that child's. It's, it's okay that we have kids here and the kids do kid things and they make kid noises and we celebrate that. There are whole churches that would give wings of their church in order to have back kid noises in the church. And so we see this as a blessing. We love it. We get to see this morning how investment in those children over decades and years pays off teachers and leaders and mentors and friends. I think half the church was up here this morning praying over these kids, um, and the other half was probably going like, there's no room, I'll just pray from back here. And so we are, we are so grateful for that. We love to celebrate the graduates. Um, we love rites of passages around here. We think they're vital for us understanding who we are and how to live that out. Um, celebrating you guys, the graduates, you, you have over the last month or two had 
I don't know, a dozen to half a dozen people speak like, this is how you're going to change the world, or this is what you need, the one message, and so let me do mine. I have one message to, for you to remember, in addition to all the others that you've heard, and it's this, don't miss church. This is the number one piece of advice I would give you going off to college. There's a lot of others. If you want to come talk to me, I'll share, but here's the deal. Don't miss church. Clubs, political organizations, Greek organizations, they must never be prioritized over the bride of Christ, even school itself. The bride of Christ is the core of our community. It has to transcend those others. Make your friends at church. Join the ministry at church. Meet your spouse at church. Let this be the place um, that the local church be the, the most powerful expression. Those other things are all fine in their place. Um, but I would tell you, don't, it was the advice I was given. It was great advice. The first Sunday you're there, stop unpacking, stop, stop putting together your apartment, and go find a church. If it's a terrible church, don't go back. Go to a different one the next week. Do that until you find one that's awesome. And then um, plant there, serve there all during your college years. I'm telling you, don't miss it. Adults, hey, here's a quick also thought. Don't miss church. Um, Barna found out that in America right now, people consider themselves regular attenders if they come one Sunday in six. Um, that's, that's not going to impact you in the way that it needs to. If you come every week and the only thing you come to is Sunday morning experience, um, it will not probably impact you all that much. Um, if the fullness of your Christian faith is a couple of hours on Sunday morning, you are not having a very full Christian life. Um, it is irreplaceable. We need to have this. We need to gather together. But it isn't the, it isn't the full picture. It's just this is the huddle. It's not the game. Um, okay, so we're talking about baptism. Um, also, just got to tell you, honestly, students, some of the best people I know go to church. And so I would love to encourage you also to consider that. So thinking about today as we're talking about what is baptism. Baptism comes from a Greek word. Now, this is subtle, and you've got to listen for it. But the Greek word for baptism is baptismos. So some of you may catch that that's the Greek word for baptism. It's pretty obvious. Not hard to, it's, not, it's not hard. It just means to wash. It just means to clean with water. But it is interesting. It's a specific Greek word that actually means to fully clean, um, to completely clean, the holistic type of cleaning. Um, so before I unpack this, I want to also comment on this. I, I have a bad habit. I have to admit this. I, my bad habit is to treat all things religious as merely religious. And that's a bad habit of mine. It's a bad habit, which means they're not that important. They're just traditions. And what I've had to learn over the years is to be reminded that not all traditions, especially religious ones, are created equal. Some are just traditions. They're fine for what they are, tradition. Some are vital to the faith. And I believe baptism is one of those. Not all of them are created equal. I want to show you these two words. In Mark chapter 7, um, Jesus is, is having a conversation um, with some Pharisees. And what's interesting is one of the few things that people, that most Christians think they know about the Old Testament is that it teaches that people are supposed to wash their hands. Now, that's actually not in the Old Testament. That is not part of the Jewish law to wash hands. That was additional laws created by the rabbis. Um, later. And this is the debate that's going on between Jesus and some of the Pharisees here. I'll pick up in verse 3. I'm sorry I can't get more into the context. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash. Um, this word nip sotai means to wash apart. Unless they wash their hands properly. 
So this is a Greek, it just means to wash apart. If I, if I had a baby doll up here and I washed off one of its arms, the Greek word that would be, would, that's, this would be the Greek word for that, to wash apart. Keep going. To wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Different word. Baptismo is the word here. It means to completely wash. They do not eat unless they completely wash, and there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing, baptismo, of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So here's, here's what I want you to see is that there's two, different, there's two different concepts here, and one is this idea of washing the part of, and one is the idea of the complete washing, the completeness of it. Just like you, you don't take a cup and just wash a little section, that would not count as washing the cup. You, you put it in the soapy water, you clean it out, you scrub it, you do all that kind of stuff. And here's the thing, the, the, the Jewish people, when they lived, they were surrounded. In fact, they were infested by the pagan world. Um, and so they, when they went to market, market literally means the Greek or Roman section of a city that was the, the market, the cardo. That's where the the pagan temples would have been, where the food sacrificed to idols, that's where all of that was. And so every time the Jewish rabbis, the leaders, went to these areas, they would go and do whatever business they had to do in the markets. But before they ate again, they would literally completely wash. This was the mikveh bath. The mikveh bath um, was the Jewish thing. See, baptism predates Christianity by a long shot. The Jews were engaging in what was called the mikveh bath for centuries before um, and so there was, in every town, in every Jewish town, at least one, and in Jerusalem they've dug up hundreds if not thousands of these mikveh baths. I'll explain that more in a second. But here's what it was. A set of stairs that went down into the ground, had a roof over it or went down into a cave, and then at the bottom hopefully was spring-fed water. Like they didn't have to add water, the water just naturally um, came up in that. They wanted natural moving spring-fed water whenever possible. So you would, you would go, they would go down, and at the top, at the, near the bottom, they would strip completely of all of their clothing. They would go down into the last little bit. They would completely immerse themselves under the water. Then they would come back up out of the water, dry off, put on fresh clothing, and come out. This was the mikvah bath. It had to be done every single time they went up onto the Temple Mount, for example, which is why there were hundreds, maybe thousands of them in Jerusalem. Because every time you went up onto the Temple Mount, every single Jew had to do this. That was the mikveh bath. So what is it? What do we, how do, what do we take from that? What did the early Christians do with it? Well, the, the early Christians, clearly, they saw it as a dramatic public demonstration that communicates and celebrates salvation by a washing of the whole. That was the picture and an era of graduations for every year of school, not just the 12th one, but seems like every year now we have another graduation ceremony, or we do a, a trophy ceremony, an award ceremony for every event, and everyone who ran, even if they lost, gets a, gets a ribbon. This idea of celebrating and, and having these demonstrations is not strange to us, especially also in an era of demonstrations, protests, and riots. A public demonstration meant to communicate a message. Christians have been doing it for a long time. And the Jews were doing it from before then. So how does it, how does it, how does it communicate um, salvation? Well, it is what is called an antitype for salvation. Now, you got to be careful with a word like antitype, because it's a Greek word, and we, know, we all know the Greek prefix anti, meaning against, but a lot of times we forget that there's another Greek prefix, A-N-T, ant, which just means before. And so, so the idea of saying this is a symbol, an antitype, it's a type that is before. It is a, 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 a 
symbol without the substance. It's a picture of. That's what an antitype is. It's a, it's a word that kind of can confuse us like the word infamous, right? We, we all get confused by that because it's some, someone is infamous. That means they're more than famous, right? Like El Guapo. No, it, just, it means there's something different about the, that. My generation only got that joke. Sorry for the rest of you. An antitype. An antitype corresponds to the form and structure of another thing. Um, like the word anticipation. Uh, that's the, an anti-caper, an ant-caper, meaning a caper, but you're planning the caper in advance. It's a story, an event, an activity that you're doing the work in advance before it. That is in anticipation of it, to take care of it before. That's ant. And then typus, the mark a blow, a stamp. So it's the idea that when you get a letter from the king or the emperor, the stamp that's on there, well, the king isn't there, but he's kind of there. Um, you find that out if you break the seal without his permission. You'll find out he actually is kind of there. When he hunts you down and has you executed for breaking his seal, you'll discover that even though the, the form, the structure of the emperor was not there, the antitype was there. The picture, the, 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 what, the, what the emperor really is all about was there. Okay, so let's look at what First Peter says about baptism because he wants to unpack it. Now, I'll warn you in the middle, we're going to have this whole little section about Noah and the spirits from the time of Noah. If that's interesting to you, we preached through, we discussed 1 Peter about a year and a half ago. You'll have to go look at it. I definitely don't have time to unpack that verse today. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited uh, in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were being brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, you may want to guess at what the Greek word for correspond is here? It's antitype. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. So, and the difficulty of the grammar of Peter's writings aside, um, Peter has made a brilliant literary connection here. What he's done is he has said, Baptism is an antitype of the flood. And the flood was an antitype of salvation. See, just like there were people who had no hope to escape the wrath of God, and then God provided a way of escape from his own wrath, like the ark, through the flood. Therefore, people rescued from God's wrath through water into salvation. Peter says, you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of baptism. The way baptism, in a sense, kind of saves us through water from the wrath of God. Now, he very quickly, instantaneously says, no, 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 not that baptism is what does that. It's the relationship with Christ that does that. It's not literally the water washing of the body. It is the water that signifies, that is the corresponds to, that is the antitype. My favorite example of an antitype is actually a shadow. If, you, if you're standing somewhere and you see the shadow of someone coming around the corner, you know they're coming. That is an antitype. You see it. The form is there, 
but the structure, the substance isn't there until the person arrives. And in fact, the concept of antitype is, anti-type is taught all through Scripture um, with the idea, like when we're talking about Samuel, so we talk about Samuel being the antitype of a Savior. Even Saul and David being antitypes of the Christ figure, the Messiah, the Anointed One. We see this all through. I'm going to be teaching through the book of Ruth soon at a family camp. And we, we get to the end of chapter 1 of Ruth, if you're familiar, and it's just everything is hopeless. Um, the main character has changed her name to the word bitter. I am so bitter. I am without hope. God has turned against me. He has forgotten me. The, the condition of Naomi and Ruth at the end of chapter 1 in Ruth 1 is an antitype of the condition of Israel in the, in the beginning of the first century. They are, being, they are enslaved by the Romans in their own country. They are not welcome in their own country. So much that they're naming their children, their daughters, Mara, or as we say it, Mary. They name their children bitter because, the, because they're remembering back to what Naomi was experiencing, the hopelessness and the helplessness of being utterly without any, any hope for the future, that, what that's like. And yet, then you get Boaz. And Ruth, you get Boaz, he shows up and the whole story changes. And in the first century, you get Jesus Christ and the whole story changes. Boaz was an antitype of the Christ. It's the same idea, the shadow of the real thing. This is, I want you to get this because that's what baptism clearly is in Peter's teaching. It is a shadow of the real thing. It's not that it's not the real thing, it's that it's just not exactly the real thing. So you can't, you can't, you can't, Take them apart, but you can't replace one with the other either. Baptism is a type of flood. So, how is it? How is it an antitype? Well, let's look at that. One, it is a picture of anointing. We spent a lot of time talking about anointing the last few weeks, a change that cannot be hidden. In fact, a few weeks ago, we anointed someone in church. We can show that video of Think If We Got It Ready. So we anointed people in each of the service, and uh, I didn't even do it fully justice because I chickened out, even I chickened out, but look at the amount of oil I'm pouring on Jordan's head there. Um, but to recognize, it was cool to get Jordan to talk about later, throughout the day, Jordan was texting me going like, this stuff never goes away. He's like, it keeps showing back up. I've washed it out twice, and then there's more oil running down my face. He's like, what is this? And he goes, and there's no hiding it. There's a change that's happened. There's an alignment that's happened. There's an identification. I was this, and now I'm this. Something has happened, and everyone who gets within about five feet of me knows it because of the perfume effect of the, of the anointing oil as it comes off. Everyone sees it. Um, I don't remember the details of it, and, and, uh, but my memory of it is that as a, youth, as, as a youth in youth group, my youth minister came one Sunday night. So I'm, I, let me clarify. I'm, I grew up in Nacogdoches, Okay. Um, and I, could, I grew up in Nacogdoches, Texas. And, and in, in, the, in fact, my, our church was right across the street from the high school where I went to Nacogdoches High School, right? The Golden Dragons. Now, my youth minister came in one day wearing, and I don't remember how much uh, swag he was wearing from the Lufkin Panthers, but there was, he was wearing stuff from the Lufkin Panthers. And let me just tell you, don't do that. Like, that's, don't do that. Don't show up in Nacogdoches with Lufkin Panther gear on. That's not, that does not going to go well for you. So he comes in wearing Lufkin Panther gear, but he's singing the Nacogdoches fight song. Comes in singing the Nacogdoches fight song wearing the Lufkin Panther gear. And he's telling us, like, I'm such a big fan of Nacogdoches. Man, I can't wait to celebrate. We're, we're going to take them out this, this Friday night. You know, woo, what's the... Anyway, so he's, it's all... We're all ready. And he's teaching us this important point that he unpacks with, it is my... Does my life 
my expression doesn't match my words. Is my alignment really with Christ? And does my whole life line up with Him? Or am I communicating two different messages? Do I say with my mouth that I'm a Nacogdoches fan, but I dress like a fan of the Lufkin Panthers? Is, 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 do I, does the way that I dress and present myself and the, maybe the way I act and all these different things, is, do those indicate, no, I've not had a change of alignment. That's not changed. Well, baptism is a picture of anointing, and anointing is a change in alignment. I am now one of these. It's important to note that Jesus' first anointing was the Spirit descending on him like a dove at his baptism. That's one, anointing. Two, another way it's an antitype, is the washing picture. Paul had been blindsided by Christ, the Apostle Paul. His name was Saul at that point. He had turned against Christianity, thinking that that was the right thing to do. He was persecuting Christians. And Christ himself appears to him and speaks to him. And Paul was blinded by the experience. Now, Paul, being a good Jewish theologian, would know he really lucked out because he could have easily been killed by having an experience with the living God. So Paul probably thought himself lucky to get out just with being blinded. Ananias, so he's off in hiding, recovering. Ananias comes to him, a good, devout Jewish Christian convert, who comes to him and prays over him and proclaims the truth to him, which Paul absorbs, and then Paul is healed from his blindness in his salvation. And immediately, there's, there's no pause here. It's really hilarious. There's no pause. So this is, this is Paul, who has probably experienced the mikvah bath many times. He's been circumcised. He's whatever. But he goes through this experience, and the and instantaneous final words here of Ananias is this. And why do you wait? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It's an immediate type of thing. It's, there's, no, there's no hesitation. And why would there be? That's an intriguing question. Why, why, would, there, why would there be a, a, a waiting? This is a consummation of salvation. Paul, you now know Christ. Now, it wasn't the baptism that saved him. Paul is clearly a Christ follower at this point. And but the immediate response is to be baptized. It's a consummation of the event. The, it's the physical consummation of the spiritual event. It reminds me more than anything else, this idea, this urgency of like, you don't have to have a wedding night after your wedding, but why wouldn't you, right? I remember sitting at the reception being like, can we go yet? Like, it's been eight minutes. I'm ready to be alone with my new wife. We were already married. We weren't going to get any more married, but, but we had some stuff to do, and, and all these people need to go away, right? It was like, a, how, do we, how, do we, how do we speed up this process? Why would you wait? Why do you wait? Rise up and be baptized. I think it's intriguing how often Christians, for different reasons, maybe they're embarrassed to be up on stage or, or whatever, that they go, ah, maybe I'll, whatever, I don't know. What does Paul teach about it later? He writes to his um, disciple Titus in Titus chapter 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appear, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing, notice He's not going to say of water, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Right? This is the picture it isn't literally that the, the water represents the anointing, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which is a spiritual truth. 
It represents the washing, the purification of the Holy Spirit, which is a spiritual truth and irrevocable. We are purified by His work. We can then live according to that or not not live according to that, but we can't ever not have it. As we saw with Peter's letter, it's not the literal washing of the body. It's the purification of the identity of the person, the very conscience, the core of who we are. Okay, number three, dying, and not the type you think, D-Y-E-E-I-N-G. The, the role of baptism plays a significant role here. I'll just do this quickly. If you say this picture that's there, baptismo can mean to die, D-Y-E, um, this idea of, of immersing something and pulling it back up and it being something new. If you have a white shirt and you have a big bucket of blue dye and you push the shirt all the way down in and then you pull it back out, what color is the shirt now? It's blue. It's not a white shirt colored blue anymore. Now it's a blue shirt. Its identity has changed. It isn't what it was, but it has, it's fully immersed, pulled out as something brand new. That's how important it is. Baptism of water is recognized alongside as a testimony. Listen to what John says. Um, John, one of the disciples of Jesus, who spent a lot of time with him, writes this in 1 John 5. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. So as Christians, you can, ha- you, can, uh, you can have testimony that counts through water, testimony through counts through blood, or through the Spirit. And the cool thing for Christians is we have all three that testify. If Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. I think that's a reference to baptism. The testimony of men is baptism. And it's a good thing. It's good to have that. But of course, the testimony of the blood and of the Spirit is greater. The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. I believe the thief on the cross was probably not ever got the chance to be baptized into the Christian faith of conversion. There was no water testimony for him, but there was a blood testimony, and it was happening right next to him. There is the Spirit testimony in him. I think these are both there. And then finally, the other type of dying, D-Y-I-N-G. Um, as a boy, um, uh, with, with my dad being a, a professor at SFA, I spent a lot of times at the Stephen F. Austin uh, University pool, um, while, especially while my mom swim laps. And I loved the feeling of that, the buoyancy and the grace of being underwater. I've always loved that, the coolness of diving low and rising up. And I was a, a skinny guy at that stage in life. I could, with full lungs, I could walk across the bottom of the 12-foot uh, section of the pool. And I loved that, the stillness, the quietness, the coolness of that. And to me, in many ways, I equated being underwater to flying. I don't know if any of the rest of you have that experience, but that's how it felt to me. To be lowered into the cool water, restful like death, and raised back up again into the newness of a world washed. My soul to be like that, to be washed and renewed and set in alignment with Christ. This is part of what I love about baptism, is that I'm an active recipient. My only activity in baptism is to receive It is by the will of someone else that I am pressed down into the water and held there, identifying with the death of Christ. And then by the will of another, I am lifted back up out of the water. In fact, after watching uh, Jared Schuler, uh, I guess a few months ago, baptize his children, I saw the the sense of intentionality, of the the, almost a forcefulness of of down into the water and back up out of the water, the, the power of that. And so now I, I baptize that same way. That inspired me, that, the power of that movement to recognize 
I am active, but I'm only active as a recipient. I am receiving that, and it's a beautiful picture of it. Um, so I'm going to skip over the first Peter verse again and go to Matthew 28. So who baptizes? Who baptizes? Well, let's look at Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, and some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now there may be some who would say, Well, Chris, look, there was just the 11 disciples were there that he gave this instruction to. So it's, it's only the professional Christians who need to be doing the baptizing. It's only the ordained or the called or the somehow anointed special Christians somehow that need to be doing this baptizing. And I can see that I can see the argument, although understand that by the same argument you would say that only the special Christians are supposed to go and make disciples and teach. And I don't know that anybody's going to be willing to let everybody else off the hook for all of the responsibilities of the of the calling of the ministry of the gospel. But more significant to me in this passage is that you say, you look at now the 11 disciples, that word there is the exact same word that is used down in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. In other words, you make disciples like I am making you disciples. So that they then make disciples who are like the disciples you made, that are like the disciples I made, and on and on and on. So that those instructions, even if they were just to the eleven at first, cascade down through the recreation of that. You're creating new people to go, new people to teach, new people to baptize, and to be baptized. Which is the final question, who gets baptized? Well, I think, I think obviously we talk a lot, especially in the Baptist world, of the baptism of conversion. That it's a, it's a representation, I'm going to come back to that, of there's a moment that's happened, and we, we focus a lot of attention there. I'll get back to it. But I kind of espouse the mikvah picture, which is there, the, the mikvah picture of baptism. Baptism is a beautiful picture, a rite of passage that can connect to any number of things. Um, I wonder about the idea of, of people who would want to be, maybe someone would want to be baptized before a wedding, like the Jewish people were, or after a sickness, like they were, to experience that type of baptism before becoming a priest or taking on a new role of ministry. I don't see these. Now, as long as it's clear that these aren't baptisms of conversion, because you would only ever need one of those, right? But other baptism too, they, they baptize to enter the temple area. They baptize dead bodies to prepare them, prepare them for burial. That would be a little strange, I think, but, but for conversion. And let me just take a second to talk about conversion. Um, so here's the deal. See, you are not a follower of Christ, at some point, you weren't. Um, no, one's, no one has always been a Christian. So, so when you get asked that, when did you become, oh, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. Um, no one is born on that team. Um, no one starts there. Now, you may not remember before you became a Christian. That's different. But there was a time in which you were not a Christ follower. You were a servant of self. You followed the philosophy of the world. The letter to the Ephesians makes it clear that we weren't some type of moral free agents. We were rebels from the start. And at some point, if you've put your faith in Christ, you have switched sides. You have radically changed directions, a total reformation of the identity. 
the abandoning of the orphanage and the joining of the cosmic royal family. Like adoption, adoption is one of the favorite analogies created by God to exemplify the change in identity. That I was fatherless. I was an orphan. That's what identified me, an orphan. And then I was accepted into the family of Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. And now I am not an orphan. I am a son. That is a radical difference. That's a change in identity that is pictured by this. John says that the work of Christ in John chapter 1 allows us to become the children of God. I know in the 80s we all love to join pinkies and sing about how we were all the children of God, but it's not the truth. We're all the creation of God, but only those who put their faith in Christ become the children of God. Of course, the outward change may seem small at the time of conversion, at the time when we went from being lost to being found from being orphans to being sons and daughters. The outward change may seem small at the moment, but it continues for a lifetime. But I want you to hear that the identity change is instantaneous and irrevocable. The identity change is not merely from one denomination to another. That's merely a human thing, even when it matters. <coughs> what it is, is a change from lost to found, from slave to free. And everything changes when that changes. Baptism is a beautiful and powerful expression of that moment. And praise God, it's a memorable one. So that when we don't remember, I don't remember exactly how old I was. I don't remember exactly where I was. I don't remember, I don't know if I could drive back to the location of the camp where I was. My parents probably could, but I don't remember the, the details of those things. But I do remember when I was baptized. And so that becomes like a stone of remembrance for me. It's something I can remember the goodness of God, that what he did. And it becomes memorable for me in that moment. In the end, when I got done writing all of this, and I was then listening to a, a sermon by Alistair Begg um, on baptism, which is also which was really great. I really appreciated it. But he said something in the end that I think is a worthwhile question. If you are convinced that Jesus teaches us to be baptized, so if, you, if you're convinced of that, he says, then, if we follow Jesus as Lord, we must obey. And if we follow him as Savior, we want to obey. That was a good encouragement to me. The reminder that there's a part of me that deeply wants to follow my Savior, to follow my rabbi, to follow my Lord. And baptism is a cool part of that. It's a cool way to do that. So whatever that is, whatever those barriers are between you and that decision, one, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've not experienced that conversion, if you've not said, I was lost and now I'm found and I want everyone to know it. Maybe you come to a point in life when you would say, I have been found, but I have also been living in rebellion. We have baptized people for repentance here, which is what John the Baptist was doing when Jesus came, baptizing people for repentance, not for conversion. They didn't need to convert. He was baptizing them for repentance. I've been walking in the wrong direction. I need to reverse course. I was walking this way, and I need to turn and walk this way. Like that was what was going on, and, and oh my gosh. And so there's a, a baptism, I think, of repentance that's totally appropriate as well. But what I want you to hear is if what's in the way is you've never put your faith in Christ, it's time. Today, let today be the day of salvation. If you have put your faith in Christ, then my hope would be that you would say, I need to follow through with this. And I would like to be baptized as a public display. And is it embarrassing? Maybe. Is it weird? Yes. 
But you know what? We're probably all going to applaud for you. Probably no one's going to laugh at you. We've had some pretty crazy baptisms around here. We've had the water too hot and the water too cold. We've had people uncomfortable and people nervous and people shy to be up on stage. But it's a great step. They've all, every one of them has pushed through. And I think that's a great first step of facing the challenges of following Christ. So I want to encourage you in that. You guys can come on up. So they read again this passage as they come up from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. You can stand, if you will. And in a moment when we sing, if you would like to come up um, and, and let us know or ask questions, I don't know what it's like to follow Jesus. I'd like to learn more about that. You may have people around you who know, and they'd love to talk with you about it. Um, if not, we certainly would as well. Maybe you'd like for someone to pray with you. You can head over there or up to one of us up here in the front, and we'd love to pray with you. Um, if you've been through our Welcome Home team and the whole process, and you're ready to f- join our um, family here, dysfunctional though it is, we would uh, love to have you. So let me read this once again, a reminder to us. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, the very words of God.